0: Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I was delighted to be joined by Ian McIntosh. Now I'm going to read from Ian McIntosh's Wikipedia page here. Hmm, fine reading. Ian McIntosh is a British journalist, author and podcaster. Ian McIntosh has worked for ESPN, has been the editor of the set pieces, written for The Guardian and has also had his articles in the Blizzard and Sports Illustrated, The Anfield Rap and has appeared on the BBC television programme Premier League World. He's written numerous articles and books about the computer game Football Manager, and most recently, and perhaps most importantly for our conversation, was a co-founder of Muddy Knees Media, which produces the Totally Football show, amongst others including the Totally Football League show, and even podcasts that aren't about football. Imagine that. In recent news, Muddy Knees Media has become a part of The Athletic, joining TIFO, in a triangulation of exceptional content. No one told me to say that. I just, uh, (laughs) I made it up myself. And uh, I think it's true and sounds cool. So Ian joined me to talk about uh, the history of his career, his time spent working on building sites and selling black bin bags, his first jobs in journalism, and his career all the way through to the sale of Muddy Knees Media in recent weeks, plus what he's going to be doing next. Ian is a lovely guy, and it was a delight to be able to spend an hour Um, chatting to him about his life. And I hope those of you listening will enjoy. Anyway, before we get started today, please let me remind you that the football is back. Yes, that's right. The football is back. And as a result of that, for a limited time only, and I believe only for a few days after the release of this podcast, the 40% off an annual subscription offer for The Athletic is available. Now that will stop So uh, do get in there before the end date, which I wish I knew, but I don't, because that would be too professional for this. But if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you'll be able to get a subscription to The Athletic for what is the equivalent of £3 a month in the UK. And you can join the triangulation crew. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? But do please do that. Anyway, without further ado, I will leave you in the warm embrace and the cool hands of Ian McIntosh Have you always loved football, Ian?
1: Yeah, from very, very early on Um, uh, and and I always knew I was really bad at it as well Um, There there was a very early move to playing goal all the time because that was the only way I'd get a game because no one else wanted to dive about on concrete and I couldn't kick in a straight line
0: Yeah, Um, Yeah, me too
1: yeah, it was it was it was terrible. But I was, I, I sort of went straight into nerd mode right from the beginning. You know, I'd be watching games on ITV on Sunday and then writing my own little match reports in scraps of note paper and showing them to friends at school who really couldn't care less. Um, which was to be, I guess, a harbinger of my future journalistic career.
0: <laughs> Do you still have any of those scraps of paper?
1: I don't. No, I I've got some from. Um, I, I had a kind of six-form college football newspaper about our five-a-side league that was called Dodgy Tackle, um, and I, I found that uh, I found that in a box somewhere um, during lockdown tidy-up. Um, how was
0: the quality of your writing? Pretty, time?
1: pretty poor. Pretty poor.
0: What were you doing? What, how, why was it bad?
1: Um, it was. It was just match reports on five-a-side games, and some bits were quite interesting, and some bits were 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 pretty horrific. So, so again, very little changed over the next twenty years.
0: <laughs> do you feel like when you look back at writing like that, you know people people who are uh, uh, are in therapy, for example, might look back at a diary entry that they'd written ten, fifteen years ago and glean something significant from it. When you look back at old uh, writing about football, what do you what do you learn from it about your football writing journey?
1: <laughs> um, I, I always look back on stuff, and I think, like particularly the stuff that I wrote when I was younger or when I when I first started writing professionally, which wasn't until I was twenty nine. Um, and I think, how are you so sure about everything? I was so <laughs> forthright in the early days, and I think towards the end of it in twenty seventeen, I I found it really hard to be forthright on anything because I think the more the more that you find out, and the more people you talk to, and the more perspectives you get, the less certain you are of anything. But I think that's true. Outside of journalism as well,
0: are you uh, Yeah, that's true. You you also grow into being more self conscious the the f- the more that you develop an awareness of the of the surrounding world. I think that's true of musicians as well. Like you get when people are in their sort of teens and late late teens, they'll write songs that are incredibly gushing about the way that they feel. But by the time they get to their mid twenties, they're suddenly too embarrassed to to sing them. <laughs> I wonder if it's there's, there's yeah. something along those lines.
1: No, I, I think there's there's definitely something in that.
0: Yeah. So you were 29 years old when you started writing uh, about football professionally. How did you make that that leap?
1: Um completely by accident, really. Um I I, I did a degree in journalism studies at the Falmouth College of Arts, but I kind of let myself down by very rarely turning up. Um, yeah. And the only smart thing I did was uh, about halfway through the third year I started applying for jobs in journalism. Um and then I was doing interviews sort of through March and April uh and then got offered a job so you know i went to the lectures and said look is there anything to stop me taking this job because it's a job in journalism in london I, that's kind of why i kind of why i did all this now like, well, you, you've got to finish your dissertation so fine fine i'll finish it by the end of the week no like, we well, you, you can't just leave um but i did just leave what was the um, job Um, It was, I I had three job interviews, and uh, one was at Match Magazine in Peterborough. Um, One was at uh, the new PlayStation 2 magazine in Bath, which gives you an idea of how long ago it was. PlayStation 2 hadn't launched at that time. Um, And the other was for a small business-to-business sort of business news startup website in, uh, in Old Street. Um, and I got to the final six of PlayStation 2, the final two of Match Magazine, and didn't get either of them. So I ended up writing about business news. Wow. Um, but what kind of stories? Well, it was, it was really just, it, it wasn't really a journalism job. It was sort <laughs> of going through, it was like a night shift job, and you get a pile of papers starting with the FT, and then you'd sort of basically read it and pray say it specifically for corporate clients. It was every right. bit as exciting as I'm making it sound. <laughs> um, and the first day I started was the day that Boo.com went under, uh, the Swedish uh, clothes online retailer. Yeah. Um, and everyone said, well, that's it. Told you the internet was, uh, was uh, busted flush. <laughs> it's just like the South Sea bubble all over again. No one's ever going to buy clothes on the internet, idiots um and about a year later uh, that was the end of my my job and the intervening <laughs> years were spent on building sites and a security guard and a memorable period selling black bin bags um which i was really good at by the way that that's probably of L- literally all the like the what's
0: the peter k show where they sell black bin bags. get your yeah. black
1: bin bags <laughs> yeah. phoenix yeah. nice i mean literally <laughs> like phoenix
0: though no. were you singing as well
1: Um, that was pretty much all anyone sang at me when I turned up at the pub while I was doing that it it never got old never got old
0: no I can now feel bad for saying it what was your selling technique (laughs) how do do you sell a can you sell me one now
1: yeah well what I had I had a discount stick Um, so I'd tell people about the black bin bags um, and and I'd find a a, you know if I was selling to a restaurant I'd, I'd be like you know There's nothing worse, is there, than pulling a big bin bag out at the end of the night and having it split and go all over the floor. You know These bin bags are a little more expensive, but how much would you pay just not to have that happen again? And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out my discount stick. And I'd always (laughs) go, what? I'll go, it's my discount stick. Here it is.
0: And I'll go. It sounds almost uh, threatening in a way.
1: I think it was. I think it was. And it would be like, that's the sound of interest-free credit. That's the sound of free delivery. That's the sound of 10% off because I like you. Are you in? Um, and that's, a, that's a very 90s were.
0: audio burn right there as well. I feel like that, <laughs> really, that tone really sets it in a, in a particular time. You're clearly a man made for audio. Uh,
1: I don't know. I think, uh, I think I've got quite a sort of nasally annoying voice. Um, so does so
0: John Ronson thinks that too?
1: Does he? Yeah, about <laughs> well, himself. Well, I, Oh, right. I was going to say, well, <laughs> never had a row with him. I think John Ronson's got a silly voice. Fine. <laughs> it's war. Um, yeah, so I've, I've never... Um, I've, I'm one of those people who doesn't really enjoy listening to himself. Um, uh, and I had to a bit at the beginning because I kept doing things like saying um a lot and having meandering sentences that went nowhere and I had to sort of hammer it into myself to be a little more articulate and controlled uh with with mixed results it has to be said um but yeah it's I I think I just I like storytelling Uh, I love a good story um and audio particularly now gives you such a great opportunity to do that in, in so many interesting ways it opens up uh, because of the internet, and because of you know the way we take our content, uh, there's so many different voices now, so many people from so many different backgrounds. It's it's not something I ever really gave too much thought to before, you know, before sort of muddy knees media and everything. But um, now's a really exciting time for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's almost uh, primal in a sense, isn't it? Um, well, tell you what, let's come back to muddy knees media. I'm curious to you did your journalism degree between 26 and 29, was it?
1: Uh, no, my journalism degree I did between uh, 18 and, uh, oh, 18, and 20. Oh, so, I see. So you mean
0: you didn't actually start your current career until you were 29?
1: Yeah, I had, uh, as I say, some years in the wilderness. Right, OK. And what were you doing
0: on the building sites? Building?
1: <laughs> I was. Uh, I was a Sparks mate. Which wow. means, basically, you don't know anything about electricity, so you're not allowed to touch, but you can carry things <laughs> for electricians. Um, oh, cool. And again, that was every bit as, as fun as it sounded. It was a lot more fun in the summer, i tell right.
0: you. Do you know the stereotype of a building site is that it's very uh, sort of masculine and uh, people, you know, are sort of cruel in a boyish way to each other and they're all laughing and being laddie. Is that, is that true? Did you, if, if so, did you enjoy that and fit in?
1: Uh, well, I used to turn up for work with a rolled-up copy of the Guardian under my arm, so I think that probably <laughs> you were the Graham Lasso of the building, <laughs> yeah, completely. That was very rarely intact <laughs> by the end of the day. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it, it was, it was, it was fine. You know, you you learn a lot of lessons on a building site. Some are painful um, and some are more simple ones. Um, I always go back to the fact that my boss on the building site, he used to go to the same school as me, same comprehensive school in Essex, and he was expelled at the age of 15. I cannot remember what for. Um, But he, you know, out of school, he went to technical college. He taught himself um, how to be an electrician. He worked his nuts off. Um, and then by the time I came out, you know, with my rolled up copy of the Guardian, he was my boss, and he was earning a fortune. Um, he was earning, yeah. This was sort of, when was it? Two thousand and two? Yeah, two thousand and two. Because I listened to the World Cup on the radio, um, and he was earning a hundred thousand pound a year. Um, and it was, you know, one of the first moments where you you realised that cleverness. <laughs> Uh, intelligence, things like that, they're not predicated <laughs> by how well you did at school. There are a lot of extremely well-qualified people who are as thick as mints, and there's a lot of people who didn't do well in school who are geniuses.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if it's all a lie, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. Hey, so 29, what was your first uh, job that you would recognise as being part of your
1: current career? Um, so I, I got a job at The Independent uh, when I was about 25 on the syndication desk which is essentially you go through your own paper and you try and sell stories interviews and things to other papers and magazines and, and such like and that gave me a really good grounding in what editors actually want did you um, also have
0: a discount stick for that or?
1: <laughs> no that, that was very much frowned upon in this environment right. yes okay. uh, it was kind of less boiler roomy and, and more more professional um but it it I think when I came to be a journalist, I had a, a really good understanding of, of editors and what they wanted, because I've spoken to so many of them. And you realise that they they want to fill the pages. They want to fill the pages with good stuff, and then they can get on with worrying about the next thing. Um, so throughout my freelance journalism career, I I wasn't really very good as a journalist, but I was good at hitting deadlines and providing the kind of copy that they had actually asked for and not creating any other problems and I think that probably had more to do with the longevity of my freelance career than than any actual talent Um, so that was handy I went from there to a job at uh, a website that was called icons.com which was wonderful people um, doing diaries of famous footballers Oh, and I wow. think the original business plan was that people would pay like a quid a time to read 250 words from Dennis Bergkamp or, or Ryan Giggs. Uh, that didn't take off so much. Um, <laughs> what, what did take off was the merchandise, the signed shirts that, that they got from the players. Um, and, uh, and again, some, some syndication. We're making newspaper stories out of the interviews. And um, I, I realized quite soon that we probably weren't going to be able to hit any of the targets just selling the interviews of what increasingly was you know, less Dennis Bergkamp and more George Boateng. Um, and we had to do other stuff and we had writers there, um, really good writers. And I went around all the existing clients saying, look, what else can we do for you? What gaps can we fill? How can we help? Uh, and. One editor of a Singaporean newspaper was looking for sort of, you know, colourful, controversial stuff. So one weekend, I sat down and I wrote a a particularly nasty piece about Ashley Cole and the swerving off the road at the idea of a £55,000 wage. Um, And uh, I sent it as an example of what the team could do if they, (laughs) you know, if they were put to it. And the editor said, Who wrote this? Um, and and I admitted it was me and he said can you do one of these every week so for the back end of the 2006-2007 season I had a a column in a Singaporean tabloid (laughs) newspaper called the New Paper uh, and I wasn't getting a penny for it because it was my job to sell stuff it was just in this instance I was kind of writing the stuff I was selling Getting the practice
0: what uh, other examples of pieces were there if they were all sort of controversial?
1: Um... I think that uh, I remember one that I first got abuse on the internet for which was where I was comparing Carlos Tevez and Mark Viduca in terms of effort and work rate um, and pointing out that Mark Viduca's goal scoring streaks tended to be shortly before a contract expired uh, and at no other time and um, I got a message on the internet that read simply fuck off Macintosh Viduca owns your mum it was the first kind of I don't know that person. Why no. are they so cross with me?
0: Right, yeah. Um, also, a terrifying state of affairs. I think, mean, you know, owning well, another human being is...
1: Yeah, I know. And, and to what end? And and then you just don't want to think any more about it. No, um, no, exactly. So, so yeah, there, there were things like that. And at the end of that season, um, they offered me a job as a sort of UK correspondent, um, which meant I went... It was the weirdest thing, like most people's first game as a journalist is kind of, you know, with the local paper doing Chelmsford City or something. Um, And my first game was the Emirates Cup uh, in 2007. I think Arsenal against Valencia or something, you know, in in a press box that's like a five star hotel. Um, And of course, in these days, um, there was no Twitter or anything. Um, the only thing you knew of journalists, if you knew anything at all, was their byline picture, which was invariably about 10, 15 years out of date. So it was just going into this industry and knowing absolutely nobody and absolutely nothing. Um, I, I remember writing letters uh, it's 2007, so there's no excuse, but I wrote 20 letters to every press department of every Premier League team explaining my situation. <laughs> and I'm a journalist and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> I think only three clubs actually responded. Um, do you remember God which clubs? God bless all of them. Uh, Everton was definitely one of them, which is one of my many reasons for having a soft spot for Everton. And I think I think Man City and Portsmouth were the other two, but I'm not sure. Um and uh,
0: Diverging uh, success after that.
1: Very much so. Different paths, sliding doors. Um, but the only person I recognised was Brian Glanville. Um, and he taught me a very important lesson as well, because I went over to him and, and said hi and how much I'd always admired him. And he spent 20 minutes asking me about me um, and what I was doing and what I thought about the game and what I thought about Arsenal. Um, and he was and so And he incredibly wrote it all charming. down in his match report. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God, no. The man's, the man's a master. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there was one game... Go- I'm sorry, I'm going off on a massive tangent. No, no, please I do. Love, I love telling this. I sat next to Brian Glanville at an Arsenal game in my first season, and he... He had nothing in front of him. I'm sat there with my laptop. I've got my little Playfair football annual. I've got a notepad. I'm doing a minute-by-minute and minute scrappy freehand. Um, I've got eight windows open. I've got all sorts of things going on. Brian is there with nothing. And then about 20 minutes in, he pulls out his gas bill and he scribbles a couple of things down that I can't even read. He's talking all the way through the game. He's telling jokes. He's talking old stories i um, sort of banging on thinking how on earth is he going to file like he works for the sunday times about 10 minutes before the end he pulls out this mobile phone the size of brick and he just goes excuse me i i just have to file and uh, he taps in a few numbers and he goes glanville oh one two four and he takes a breath and he just goes on a bright, sunny day at the Emirates Stadium, Arsenal were given a chasing. And, and he reads out a 600-word wow. article, and halfway through, he's going, how am I doing? 520, good. Um, Leon Osman in the centre, battled like a Spartan. And he's done the whole thing. And he puts the phone down, the final whistle blows, and off he goes. Wow. And I'm still sitting there with pages of notes, things aren't into shape, and he's just bested me with only his voice. <laughs> that's that's 50 years of experience right there.
0: Do you th- I mean, do you think anyone at 50 years of experience can do that, or do you think that is a special talent?
1: I, th- I think it's all about the personality. Uh, and again, as, as with so much inside journalism and outside journalism, the thing with Brian was that he retained his enthusiasm for football. And he still does. I think he's still in press boxes even now. I saw him at QPR a year or so ago. Um, uh, he He's still as excited about football as he was when he was a kid, um, which is remarkable. There's quite a lot of people who don't retain that excitement after about three years on the job.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no I i mean, I've certainly. I mean I don't go to to matches or anything. I don't have the same job that that, that you guys have in the past, but I f- find it personally difficult to retain excitement for for football at times. I don't know about you.
1: I, I used to I used to have to make a point of it cuz you know, like anyone else. I I can be capable of a whinge um at times, but I used to try and make a thing of every single stadium I went into. Um, just sort of stopping outside and looking at all the fans going in and reminding myself that they were paying probably more money than they had to go and watch this game of football, which might be complete crap. They were going to get stung for you know beer and pies and whatever else um, and a program. They were paying a fortune to go and do this. And not only was I getting it all for free, including the food, but I was being paid to get there. You know, someone was paying my train ticket. Someone was paying my wage for doing it. And I'd try and and make a point of reminding myself every single game. Um, And also I had had my Wembley cigarette back in the days when I was smoking where I'd get off at the Tube and walk down Wembley Way very, very slowly, enjoying a cigarette and just thinking back to every cap final I'd ever watched on TV and thinking... Like you you get paid for this now you get paid to go to cup finals um,
0: You're being very I, present
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I had that I thought was a disadvantage but might have been an advantage was having spent all that time selling black Ben bags I knew what everything else in the world was like or everything else in my world everything else in the UK I knew that most jobs weren't fun um, most jobs didn't involve watching football for a living and so I think I appreciated it a lot more for that time away. And yeah, you know, I can't speak for anyone who sort of went straight from university into an internship and into you know top level football writing. But I think you know, I've I've done jobs in in Halfords and Chelmsford High Street, um, stacking sort of one thousand tins of car paint across a hot <laughs> afternoon in a scratchy polyester shirt with my yeah. name badge on. Oh, um, um. And, and when you've when you've done a bit of that, suddenly you know a trip to Burnley. On a wet Saturday afternoon, isn't really the worst thing in the world. In fact, a trip to Burnley is never the worst thing in the world. The the view from the press box is incredible.
0: Right, you know I was just thinking, it's um, not
1: aeroplanes trailing. (laughs) I was thinking that, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, jobs I've done before. Uh, uh, it struck me that I was going to say that I worked in a pub for for a number of years Uh, I probably watched more football for my job then than I do now (laughs) but then as you were describing the Halfords job I remember being a teenager I worked as a farmhand in North Wales uh, and it was quite fun Um, the farmer was terrifying and he just smoked weed all the time and he would never pay me Uh, he's the sort of guy who'd who'd be topless always and he would walk through this field of of, of cows or bulls and just smack them on the ass. Uh, no fear (laughs)
1: there
0: was a water buffalo there but the worst thing was in the summers we would do hay baling and I would get paid extra for this I'd get paid uh, £5 an hour instead of £3 an hour for hay baling um, and it was the most excruciating job I think I've ever done. Like it was, you know, in the blistering heat, 10 hours a day, every day, you would lift these hay bales. The, you, you know, you'd be lucky if you had gloves. So if you didn't, the, your fingers would be torn up by the end of the day. <laughs> uh, and because the hay at, at its stage is very sharp... And your sunburnt, when you go home and get in the shower, it just, it stings like you're being covered in acid because you suddenly realise you're cut all over your body with where the hay has kind of stabbed you. It was the hardest job I've ever had. I think I was 14, 15 years old. I mean, it was quite fulfilling in a way, but um, it is definitely better to watch football, isn't it?
1: Oh, definitely. And, you, you know, I'm I'm not saying I never moaned. I definitely moaned about things, but you, you catch yourself moaning and then you think back to that or... Yeah, you know, McDonald's on Champs High Street on a Friday night, walking around with your mop and trying not to get punched in the face. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? Life's all right. Life's okay. We're doing all right.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, so you, you were at the Independent for a while. You moved on. What did you do between then and Muddy Knees Media?
1: Um, so I, I worked for the, the new paper for a few years, and they were great. And. Gave me an opportunity to say get on the circuit and go to games and meet people. Um, Twitter came along, which probably made quite a big difference um, because it was easier then to sort of put yourself about and get your name known. Um, I started doing freelance um, and did some work for ESPN and was lucky enough to be offered a job by them. in I think about 2013, um, and uh, you know, sort of things came along you know little bits of tv or little bits of radio um and uh the set pieces of course um uh, my first
0: football writing piece of money bit of money
1: (laughs) it was wasn't it it was Yeah. yeah
0: yeah i um thanks for that
1: no problem at all um yeah i wanted to have good imaginative stuff um i wanted to pay people I was very very big on always have been very very big on making sure that everybody gets paid you know muddy knees media even the work experience kids got paid uh, London living wage um, to to make sure that you know you I think if people are working for free they'll they'll want to do it for a short period of time and then eventually it will become the sort of least important thing in their life quite un- understandably yeah yeah um, you know it's it's a kind of selfish thing as well as not wanting to exploit people but it also means that you get access to people that perhaps you wouldn't ordinarily get access to. You you have you you prevent having the same old voices coming in because, you know, they're the voices of people whose parents can look after them while they're doing internships. So that was always a big thing and getting people paid for doing freelance was a big thing. I think I look back at the set pieces and I made so many mistakes right from the start. Um that I think I could have done that a lot better. Like what? Um, um I don't think there was no consistency on it. There was no. Um, you know, it was only when we started doing the Championship Manager stories that people had a reason to come right. back and check. Like a USP. Then, I think, yeah, or just just an idea. I think yeah, you know, like anything in business, you know, it, it, it's all about what do people need and why am I the best person to supply that need. And when you're changing your tone and changing your approach as often as I was at the set pieces at the start, it's very difficult to. You, know, you can't serve someone's need if you're not supplying a single need. You're just sort of throwing interesting ideas up against a wall. Um, you know, I often think if I could go back and do that again, um, how, how differently I would, I would do it. But you know, a lot of the stuff that I learned there came in extremely handy when I started Muddy Knees Media.
0: So it was the thing that, um, I suppose, the place that you learned the lessons beforehand.
1: Yeah, you only really learn by making mistakes. Hideous, yeah, it sucks. That doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, it really does. The worst does. thing about learning. <laughs>
0: um, okay, right. Muddy needs media then. This um, is it not. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, not just because of, of how successful Muddy Needs Media has become, but also because of the position you were in, presumably when when you began. Um, I know you as a football writer, which is not what you are now. Uh, so that's quite a big shift. And Seb and I were chatting beforehand about this, trying to think of other people who've made a similar. A similar sort of move and and, and it been as successful as yours has and we can't really think of of that many people what spurred you on to to make um, such a well seems like a kind of a drastic uh, change and maybe it didn't feel like that to you at the time though
1: no it definitely it felt drastic but it also felt right I think while I've been doing the set pieces I've been doing a few other things as well uh, sort of setting up Q&As, um, taking contracts with, you know, sort of corporate clients who wanted to put on events because I had a phone book full of ex-footballers um, that I'd done things with in the past. And, you know, you put them together and um, it you was an interesting sideline. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, I might not word it like that. But, no, I but did that on guess purpose that's, to be that's accurate. <laughs> um, I I was David Squire's agent. Yeah. Um, mm. I had I, you know like everyone else I'd seen David on on Twitter during the 2014 World Cup and this was shortly before I started the set pieces and I was desperate to get him on there um and I couldn't do that so I I sort of got in touch and said look you're brilliant I love you um you should do a book and he, you know we sort of went back and forth and I said look I know a few people in publishing I'll I'll go out I'll be your agent I'll be your Mr 10% um, I don't think we ever even signed a contract, and I just went out, pitched his book, and got him a a, a really good two book deal. Um, I think pretty much the first person I spoke
0: to. Oh, <laughs> well, that's an easy ten percent. Huh? <laughs>
1: um, so it was.
0: It, I bought that it, first it was, book actually. It,
1: it's brilliant, it and I mean, yeah. everything he does is brilliant. Sickening man, um, oh, he's he's wonderful. He's really lovely. Um, it, it, it was little things like that were really exciting me. Just going out and pitching an idea and trying to make stuff happen, and I don't know, it it was scratching an itch that I don't think I I had in journalism. Um,
0: what is that entrepreneurial ship? Is it or
1: yeah, I d- yeah, I guess so. Um, I don't I don't think I saw it in those kind of terms. I just had an urge to do stuff. Um and I'd I th- I think I might have been coming to a point where yeah and we've talked about how amazing football journalism is and what a great job it is. But there was a lot of you know travelling up the um up the M1, um going to a ground, doing the match report, hitting send, getting in the car, back down the M1 and it didn't really sort of go anywhere you went and you did your job and you enjoyed your job and you did it and you hit send and you know shortly after you got home that article had been read by all the people it was going to be read by and then it was on to the next thing and there was what, never what
0: any what is the natural endpoint within the the sort of career perspective of that do people ascend to editor or is, is there somewhere that you, that you kind of naturally go along that track or is that when in football writing is that kind of where most people stay
1: well, I think there's, you know, there's, there's different routes um, and it's, it's not for everyone. It, it's a huge strain if you have a, if you have a family because um, you, you, know, you, you lose your weekends. But yeah, some people go onto the desk and rise up as sub-editors and sports editors and uh, some people shift off into writing books. Um, and I, when I'd started, I was so excited about being there. When people used to say, you know, where do you think you'll be in 20 years? I'd always say, well, still doing this. I'm still doing this in 30 years. If I if I can do this until I get carried out of the press box, um, then then that will suit me just fine. Because what better way is there to to spend your life? And by the end, I wasn't really feeling that anymore. Um, it's also one of the reasons why I took myself off the Totally Football show very quickly, um, and used myself only as an emergency guest because I knew that it wasn't it wasn't there anymore. The thing that sort of propelled me along. For most of my time as a football journalist, was was fading, and I was getting more of a more of a kick from, you know, doing deals and trying to build things, Um, and uh, it wasn't right for me to be in the studio anymore.
0: It's 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 very interesting to hear you say that. That's that's. I mean, you're thinking. Sounds like you're thinking about it from quite a creative perspective, and I suppose that's something that happens to lots of people. People deal with it in better and worse ways. It sounds like you dealt with it in a in a very in a very good way, right? By creating something which is as successful as Muddy Knee's media.
1: It was, um, yeah, I think there was there was the desire to build something. Yeah, we we had the building blocks. Yeah, we got the best presenter in the world. Um, I I don't think my broadcasting career could ever be described as anything more than modest, but I worked in a lot of places with a lot of people. And there's no one in James Richardson's class. He is so sharp. Um, he will drop jokes that you won't even notice because they come in too quickly and under radar. Um, so to have him was, you know, an incredible thing. And with him, you you haven't just got a mainstream football show, you've got Galapso, which I think of all of the things we did it was one of the most loved muddy knees media shows. Um and we had producer Ben. Um, and there was there was I can say this now but there was opposition internally with you know some of the, the we, we didn't have a lot of money but we had uh, we had a few shareholders who come in and supported us at the beginning and you know they're looking at the business plan and saying well what what are you paying the producer uh that's such a big salary for you know you can just get an engineer and I was I, and I've never been able to get my head around this the fact that people don't appreciate producers and what they do and they they kind of, they set the tone, they, they control the cadence. They, they are the kind of heartbeat of the show. Um, they, without a good producer, you just end up throwing crap against a wall like I did with the the set pieces. You, you don't have any sense of kind of development and evolution and voices coming in at the right kind of times. And you also, you have a hell of a lot to worry about because with someone like Ben, you, you have someone who's you know, trained in commercial radio, he's legally aware. He knows what you can say and what you can't. He knows when things go on too long and when they don't. Um, and between him and Jimbo, you know that that was an absolute unstoppable team. And I felt that if we could take that, and if and it was a big if, if we could build one show then we could build two and then we could build three if we could build three and get a reputation for building shows we could do different shows about things that weren't about football and if we could be good in audio then why couldn't we do more than podcasts why couldn't we look at doing audio books? and if we had people who were listening to the show then why couldn't we have people online reading a website and if we have people reading a website and why couldn't we have people reading a book and so on and so forth um Looking back, we didn't have anywhere near the resources to do any of those things. Um, And the the original business plan was to do the Totally Football show for a year. And I would continue working as a journalist. And then in the second year, we might have a look at doing a a football league show. And in the third year, you know, we have this idea about this sort of classic Italian football show. Um, And in the end, the audiences were just so big right from the start that I had to take the decision of ending my football journalism career, which I, I wrestled with for about three months and knew was the right thing to do as soon as I'd done it. Yeah, um, yeah. And and actually just put the uh, put the pedal down and really, really go for it.
0: So can I go back a little bit and ask about how the opportunity to create Muddy Knees Media came about? Because as you say, like it, it very, very quickly became a huge big deal. Um, which you know, it sounds in some ways like it was a bit of a surprise to you, or that there was a question around whether that would be the case or not. But h- how did the opportunity present itself, and, h- and h- how was this? How did the structure work? Who did you start it with, and, and, and yeah, who was the original crew?
1: Well, I didn't. I didn't know anything about it at the end of the the preceding season. Um, I. Um, I told my daughter that, you know, we were going to have a really lovely summer, no international tournament. She was, what, twenty seventeen, She was six at the time. You know, I'd have loads of time to spend with her. And then, uh, yeah, I became aware that that people weren't as happy as they had seemed and were looking at going away and doing it differently and doing it on their own. Um, And, you know, given that I've been doing things elsewhere like the set pieces um and had a bit of a taste for it you know there was kind of conversations about well how would this work how would it go um and I I don't know I kind of probably didn't think too deeply about it um I I just always kind of thought it would work and and didn't really question it um I just kind of I think sometimes you kind of war game things in your head, don't you? You think, well, if I was doing this, how would I do it? And my feeling was that I, th- I thought audio was going to get bigger. I didn't have any idea how big or how quick. Um, it accelerated way beyond anything I expected. Um, and I thought that if every component was charged up, if everyone really went for it, like on a commercial level, on a marketing level, um, on a branding level, on just, just on everything, if they just went for it like it was the only thing that mattered, what could you do? What could you achieve? And, and I think the thought of that quite excited me. It terrified me too, because I knew, I'm not an idiot, I knew it was going to go down very, very badly. Um, and I, I think, you know, you'd have to ask the others, but I think they all knew that it was going to cause some issues, um, and there was a lot of wobbling. Um, sort of through the the back end of July, I think every person apart from me had a had a major wobble and thought, actually, is this is this the right time? Um, so we didn't. I had a pre-planned holiday, I think, towards it must have been the very end of July, um, and it still we didn't have everyone in position. We had. Uh, I don't think I've ever said this we had a a potential backer who would have really given us a lot of security who dropped out um, and we had to scramble about for replacements which is why we we launched with so little money in the bank I think it was enough for about 12 episodes and that was all we had it was insane looking back even knowing what I know now I'm not sure I'd do it again (laughs) it was so (laughs) reckless Um, and we just just sort of jumped off the side um, and, and kind of went from there. It was it was all kinds of terrifying. Um, but with with Jimbo, you know, I'm I'm sat there in the uh, I think it was the Maple Street Studios, uh, the the morning of the very first show, and I'm sweating and running outside to smoke and coming back in and legs twitching and everyone's looking like naughty school children Jimbo walks in he's got like a paper bag full of posh cakes and he he looks like he's just gone for a stroll in the park (laughs) morning everyone how you doing downstairs we go everyone gets into the studio a little red light goes and he just takes a breath he goes live and in high infidelity (laughs) and and that was it we we were off and we are We'd been asked by potential commercial partners, you know, what audience we thought we were going to get. And I'd, I'd said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I genuinely don't know what to say, but let's say 20,000 for the first episode and you know, maybe we'll build up from there. We did 20,000 in about 15 minutes. Uh, we were through six figures within a couple of hours. Um, it, it just took everyone aback. That's amazing. Um, it, it made it a lot easier to sell advertising after that, <laughs> um, and the, yeah, the next thing was seeing that one show had done well. Yeah, we didn't have any money, um, and we we had sponsors who were sort of slowing the burn rate of cash, but we we weren't making money um, for the first few weeks. And I wanted to do a football league show because South End fan, you know, no one ever talks about South End or any of the other clubs um so we we just decided to do it and um, we, we thought look you know I, I covered for James Richardson once yeah I'm sure I'm sure I can do it so I got in the studio we got Matt Stanger in he's brilliant um Ben produced it and I think the whole show cost us about 50 quid no I'd tell a lie we we had Alex McLeish on the first one and we took him out for lunch right um <laughs> and um and we just, we went off on that and that's getting a big audience as well. And and suddenly you're thinking we're going to have to rip up like the old business plan because it's, it's completely out of date. This thing's accelerating. So I think from about October, November, December, I'm kind of thinking, well, I don't think I can be a, a football writer and run this business because um, already by that point, by by the time winter's drawing in, I'm I'm you know in the office at six in the morning, trying to get ESPN work done, trying to write the totally football league show, trying to watch videos of football league games, um, uh, trying to do absolutely everything. I was working harder than I've ever worked in my life, and it you can't you can't half-ass two things, um, and something had to give. So as I say, I thought it backwards and forwards and inside and out because. Football journalism was a job that I, I wanted to do since I was a kid, being crap at football. Uh, was I really, having worked so hard and got to a point of relative stability, was I really going to give it all up? And I, th- I thought well, maybe the sensible thing, you know, I've obviously got, the company's been set up, quite a lot of the money that's gone into it was from my ISA. I've got quite a lot of shares in the company. Maybe I should just hire someone to run it and then get on with my career. But the thought of that was like thinking yeah, maybe I can hire someone to make love to my wife <laughs> I mean that that would save me some time wouldn't it I, I just I couldn't do it so um, so I finished up it was nice actually the first football match I ever watched was the 1986 FA Cup final uh, Everton-Liverpool and the last match I ever did as a journalist was Liverpool-Everton at Anfield Um which was one all thanks to Sam Allardyce getting a 94th minute equaliser <laughs> with about their only shot on target, which infuriated Jurgen Klopp. Yeah. Um, and all um, the
0: journalists with their deadlines. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and that was it. And that was, that, was um, that, that was the end of the writing. Um, and on January 2nd, I was in our little office in Jazz FM, a little sweat box in the basement, um, mocking out how we were going to go forward, what we were going to do. Um, how we were going to diversify. I think I've still, I've still got the business plan here. Um, about yeah, launching. I just pulled it up on my screen. Launch the totally Italian football show. Investigate a film-focused podcast. <laughs> create pilots for food and classic music pods. Yeah, we did that. That did not work <laughs> out. Um, so you wanted to diversify
0: then, away from football?
1: Very quickly, very very quickly. Because you know, with the best will in the world football fans have only got so much time um, the, the most recent figures about podcasting say that people generally people who listen to podcasts listen to four or five podcasts I think that's not a general number I think generally people listen to about two I think there are some people like you and I who listen to about ten maybe even more um, but I think most people probably listen to two, maybe three. It's, you know, it's something for the commute. Um, and you can't just go on making football shows hoping to shift one audience to the next show to be... You know, you can get people to listen to the Totally Football Show and the Totally Football League Show, and maybe Galazzo as well. But after that, Not the fourth you know, it's, yeah. it, it's going to get harder and harder. So we needed to do new stuff. And one of the things I was most passionate about was doing a history show. I wanted to do a, a history show for, yeah, you know, people like me who went to comprehensive school, or, or people who went for fee-paying schools and didn't really listen. People who just didn't have an access point for history, and that's that's how we came to work with with Greg Jenner and how we set about making "You're Dead to Me," um, which which went on to be one of our most successful shows. I think it's the second most listened to show on BBC Sounds now. Um, so what else and, have you got um, in
0: the roster for people who people who don't know your stuff beyond the football? What else have you got?
1: Well, we had six football shows um, when when The Athletic came in to buy us. But we had, I think, eight other shows, um, ranging from subjects like history. We had a, a Radio 4 show, Homeschool History. Um, we, we actually had four BBC commissions by the end. Wow. Um, so our, our income was diversified into three streams. You the were the people coming. taking
0: all of those. <laughs> that's, that's why there was none for me
1: we had to run a form <laughs> um, we, we had the, the football shows for making income uh, largely for advertising the BBC shows um, through the commission fees and we also we were getting stronger and stronger in uh, branded content for, uh, for corporations other organisations third party podcasts which were um, you know across such Diverse elements, as uh, responsible beauty and uh, horse racing, and uh, and all sorts of things. So, I think January twenty eighteen was the time when it became a a proper production company, um, rather than you know two big podcasts, Um, and and it spread out. And that also marked the time that I started to step back from the football, Um, because we, we had two rules of getting people in the studio for the Totally Football Show. They they had to be experts um and we found at, at the beginning we tried loads of things to be different and not all of them worked and one of them was that we got we had brilliant comedians coming in like Josh Widdicombe and Matt Ford um who they you know they knew their football they were really funny they were great broadcasters um but we yeah you know, we were made aware by the listeners that they were listening to hear experts on football talk about football
0: yeah um, you had your niche
1: not we, we so had much a niche, niche. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 needed to make sure that that everyone in the room was an expert, and we needed to make sure that everyone in the room loved football and was enthusiastic about it. There's plenty of places where people who don't really like football talk about football. Hello. Like any match, <laughs> any match. That Alan Green is commentating, on. Um, <laughs> or if he does, he just doesn't sound he like hides he it really it. well. I, I don't want that. I want I want upbeat, um, and you know, I. I couldn't do either of those things. I wasn't watching enough football, um, and I was more concerned with with running the business. So I became very much like emergency backup presenter um, because then you don't have to actually tell people stuff. You get other people to tell people stuff. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, it just sort of broadened and, and widened from there, and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, How does that make you
0: feel, though, if I can stop on that for a second? that because uh, you're basically accepting that uh, other people are better at, at, at sort of presenting or doing something than you as a man who who, who who i mean you you are a good presenter i've listened to episodes that you've hosted you're very good uh, you know you're a very good talker for example is it made easier to accept those things when james richardson is the person that you're surrendering to or like have, is there something <laughs> on a serious note is there something that you need to develop as an adult to accept that other people can do things better than you
1: Yeah, I mean, I think very few people could um, sit in a room with James Richardson and legitimately say, (laughs) yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, But I think it was, I've always tried to have a thing, you know, get good people to do stuff that they're good at. Uh, If you want someone to present a show, get a presenter. You know, if you want someone to write a book, get a writer. And um, it, it it wasn't good enough for me to be doing it. It needed someone who was brilliant. So the the easiest. So what are you
0: now then? Like, if you're not, if you're not the writer anymore, you're not the presenter. (laughs) Like, how do you? Do you need to categorise yourself, or if you did, what would it be?
1: I categorise myself as everything else. You know, someone needed to make sure that there was public liability insurance, so that if anyone tripped down the stairs, the company wouldn't be sued into a black hole (laughs) in space. Someone needed to make sure that. Um, when invoices came in, they were actually being paid. Someone needed to make sure that the burn rate didn't outstrip the income um, drive the company into a wall. Um, the boss man. Some, it was just a sort of everything else man, really. Um, and I found that yeah, James was the best person in the room to present the show and would be in any room he was in. Ben was the best person to produce it. And that left me to go and do all the other stuff.
0: Well, that, that is um, an interesting thing, though, because like, and I'm sure you will have noticed this as well, but particularly, uh, I I'm, imagine this is the case in every single industry, but where people are um, experts in something or are particularly good at something, you tend to find quite a lot of ego as well. So it's like I, I'm picking that up uh, as, as worthy of note, because um, there is a lot of humility in the position that you have taken as the everything else person. Like there's not, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of ego attached to that, which in my experience
1: is kind of unusual oh no privately it's enormous it's a <laughs> raging beast <laughs> no it's, um, it, it's pragmatism um, right. you're running a business you're not running your own personal profile uh, and, and this was the reason that I was very rarely on Twitter after Muddy Knees Media started and eventually just stopped logging in because I'd, there was no requirement on me to keep my profile um, there, in fact the only thing that could happen is that it could go horribly wrong the only thing that could happen is I could say something stupid and drive the business down, which was more than possible. Um, so it was, it was just things like that. If, and when you're motivated by abject terror, that if this thing goes, goes under, it's the only thing that people will ever remember about you. And there will be a long line of people waiting to throw poo at you. Um, that's quite a motivating force <laughs> to make sure that every bit of the business stands up.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. That makes sense. Hey, well, let's 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 move on to um, uh, the offside rule as an example of a of a property which you sort of uh, did. Did you acquire the offside rule? What's your relationship with that podcast?
1: Um, yeah, we 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 always you know loved the people on it. We had Lindsay Hooper on the Totally Football Show loads, um, and I'd been an admirer of their work since way before Maddie Media. They had a sponsorship agreement with Continental Tires in about 2014, I think, which is. You know, even now, that would be an amazing gap. Do you know what? I remember um, the
0: other day, Ian, that when I worked at this pub in Angel, it was a theatre pub, and um, I guess I was doing like some football sort of blogging at the time, but nothing anywhere close to professional, wasn't making any money. I completely forgot this until the other day. The Offside Rule came and did a live show in our theatre, and
1: I can't remember if I, I got in touch
0: with them or if they got in touch with, with the pub, but um, they were there and they were sponsored by, again, it wasn't Continental Tires, but it was some... Uh, like a huge global enterprise and I remember thinking it was a sort of odd thing um, and uh, yeah lots of people came and, and they did a and a at the end but uh, yeah, they've been going for a long yeah. time haven't they it's a good show.
1: Yeah they're, they're great and not only is it a good show but it provides a, a platform for, for young female broadcasters that certainly in 2013-2014 you know, didn't really exist but even now isn't you know, as, as, as well developed. Um, so they've, they've been doing great stuff and we were able to, um, to to link up with them and immediately get them a deal with Spotify to do a nightly Women's World Cup show, which was fantastic. Um, we were disappointed that of the many, many companies who, who came clattering forward to be associated with the Women's World Cup, they all vanished really, really quickly as soon as it ended and we weren't able to get sponsorship for... Um, the the WSL edition until quite late in the season when Football Manager, who are wonderful, um, came in to to support that show. Um, so yeah, I think everyone can see the potential there, um, but we weren't able to to get that that commercial support in, um, which yeah was a was a real shame, and it's one of the the many reasons why the um, the. The sale to the Athletic is is such good news for for the listeners because there's there's so much more security there now.
0: Well, let's talk about that then. Um, you have been sold to the Athletic. What happened?
1: Um, I think the the acceleration of the industry really took me by surprise. Um, I think in 2017 you were still in that period where you could. Yeah, you could have a conversation with a group of people about podcasts and someone would put their hand up and go, I'm really sorry, this might sound stupid, but what is a podcast? Um, It was still very much a kind of cottage industry with very few exceptions.
0: Whereas now that person has a podcast. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And probably owns a podcast production company too. (laughs) Um, And it just... Absolutely roared. I think the the number of people who listen to podcasts in 2017 was about three percent of the population. Even now, it's you know it's it's not as high as you would think. It's about 21 percent. Um, I think about 27 percent if you take out the over 65s. But it's still, but it's, and that is a lot of growth in a very short space of time. And I remember going to America in late 2018 to try and launch the MLS show and and also for a bit of a fact-finding mission and i'm very much afraid that the fact-finding mission was much more successful um i went to new york and i went to speak to audio boom in their office there i went to brooklyn and went to gimlet and already i'm thinking bloody hell Uh, gimlet's got like 27 studios one of which is a, a special music recording studio because they have musicians who will come in to write their theme tunes and you're looking at that going <laughs> Bloody hell! <laughs> we, we, we still have to make sure we get the cheap tea bags. Yeah. Um, and then I went to LA, and it was you know billboards the size of houses for podcasts. And you're yeah you know, you're in a cab and the radio's on and there's an advert for the podcast which is on the billboard and you're thinking oh god there's there's serious media planning going on here and yeah you know, muddy knees media media planning is just deciding whether the crickets on the telly or the footballs on the telly we would just America was so far ahead and you know what happens. It eventually catches up. So I think um, shortly after that, we launched two shows. They're both great shows, really good people working on them, one on TV and one on musical theatre. And one did a little better than the other, um, but neither of them got the audiences that they would have got if they'd been released in 2016, 2017, because... There was so much noise and so much competition and it's so hard now to cut through and reach people we had two really good shows that people would have loved but they there was no way of letting them know that they existed um so that was another kind of warning bell um and then uh i actually first met the athletic in about april may 2019 um you know around about the time of the famous hotel meetings. And they came to visit us at Jazz FM and we were talking about, you know, their plans and advertising potential and and things like that. And it was very clear from the start. These were very impressive people with uh, a very clear idea of of what was what was good and what was worth paying for. Um, And I think outside, even outside of audio, you can look at the way that we consume content now and. Five years ago, the generally accepted wisdom was people will not pay for content. But now, I mean, I've got a Spotify subscription, a Netflix subscription, an Economist subscription. Um, I, I pay for good stuff.
0: I've got a Wall Street Journal uh, one I've been meaning to cancel for about uh, two months, <laughs> but they make you fucking call them, Ian. They make you, and, then, and then they're not there when you
1: call them. I had a New York Times one, it took ages oh, to get rid God. of. Um, people will pay for good stuff and it was it was clear that you know they they were they were going to do something big and that was really fascinating and it was around about this time that all these warning bells were starting to add up into the sense that we couldn't operate as we'd operated from 2017 we couldn't just you know get good people and do good shows and release them into the ether and hope that the audience was waiting there for them because they were too hard to reach. I mean, is, the, it, is, it, risk- is it kind
0: of done the same thing as, as TV or the music industry now as well, where like if you put a lot of money behind marketing something, it can be successful. And that's the difference, not necessarily the quality of the show always, but that's one of the differences between something which reaches an audience and something that doesn't.
1: It definitely doesn't hurt. And uh, again, it comes down to those two principles. What do people need and why am I the person to satisfy that need? But there are loads of shows who tick those two boxes and don't get listened to because they've just got lost in the noise. Um, you know, it became apparent that the old trick of just sellotaping a celebrity onto the front of a good show, it wasn't enough anymore. you were getting 20, 25 um, high quality podcasts being released all, all in the same week. Um, it was, it was proving increasingly difficult to be heard. So internally, we have been talking about uh, investment um, because by that point, we'd every time we'd made money, we'd reinvested it into the business in some in some way, either by making a new show like You're Dead to Me, which took you know pilots and talent and time, um, or we invested in staff. Uh, in June 2019, we moved into these Soho Studios that I'm talking to, our own office, our own studio to give us more freedom. But it's really difficult to go from a team of six to a team of 12. It's really difficult to get the people who can make a difference at that point. You know, we right now. We would be looking at, we'd need a social media specialist, a marketing specialist. We'd need another studio, two more producers, a project manager to keep everything going. When you've got that many people, you need increased human resources, some form of middle management. It's Um, a lot of money. It's a lot of money. um, And it wasn't going to be possible to build organically. We had essentially reached our zenith in uh, about the summer of 2019. Um, from that time, the eagle-eyed observers will have noticed that we weren't launching very many new shows of our own. We had pivoted hard towards corporate income. Um, we'd brought in a member of staff specifically to go out to agencies and companies and talk about podcasts. We were, um, even in lockdown, we, we signed a deal to do a internal podcast for, for a global corporation um, because that's where, that's where revenue was. And revenue wasn't with, here's a great idea, let's get some great people and sort of hope it all works out. The industry had changed dramatically. And uh, the more we spoke to the athletic, the more, I think, I mean, ideologically we'd always aligned anyway. Both parties believe in verified experts doing good stuff, no shortcuts, good stuff. Um, so that bit was, was easy enough. And I guess what happened was was kind of natural. We want the Totally Football Show... Um, to be the biggest podcast on the planet. And it it what we've got now is it's like smashing open boxes of power ups on, on a video game. Yeah, there's there's so much more expertise and, and clout there. And it's on a personal level, it's really weird because I've worked my tits off for three years and spent yeah, morning, noon and night fretting and worrying and stressing and freaking out about every aspect of muddy news media. And the last two weeks has been kind of just handing it over to better people (laughs) people who can take it further than than i ever could i'm I'm joe gargery sending pip off to be a little gentleman (laughs) it's um it's it's a really really strange time but for the totally football show for the league show for the scottish show for the offside rule um it's such good news such a fantastic opportunity to continue the building and the development
0: who who, who are you handing it over to in
1: well, producer Ben has, has uh, got a promotion, so he's, he's executive producer now. Executive producer Ben. Yeah, lovely. Um, and I don't know uh, if that's going to catch the, on. <laughs> and uh, and the, the rest of the athletics audio department, um, who are uh, fine chaps, one and all. Um, they will do great, great things with, with the property now. Um, This is good. This is some
0: reassurance for people listening because, of course, like, you know, to be, and I appreciate that both of us are having this conversation from our respective positions of having been recently acquired by the athletic. But let's be honest, there is some uh, cynicism uh, that can be attached. I mean, a small minority from a small minority of people, but. People worry when their favourite thing gets sold to something else. They worry that it's not going to be what it was before or that there's going to be some new thing which is going to change it. I certainly experienced some people doing that with Tifo. I'm sure you did uh, with, with Muddy Knees as, as well.
1: Yeah. One of, the, one of the many, many things I've learned in the last three years is that there are certain men on the Internet who sound off about things and sound really certain about it and actually have no idea what they're <laughs> talking about. And it always seems to be men. There may well be women who do it. I haven't encountered them yet. Um, but there, there have been people who have said, oh, yeah, I know what you're doing. You're going behind a paywall. You're going to make us pay for it. And they said the same when we launched. And I, I remember looking at message boards and things going, why do they all sound so certain of this? They don't, I, I'm the one here and I know it's not <laughs> happening. The, yeah, the, the Totally Football Show is a great big mainstream football show with a great big mainstream audience. Locking that up behind a paywall serves absolutely no purpose. Um, that that is, is not going to be a thing that happens um so i wouldn't worry too much about that uh everything everything will remain the same james will continue to host the show uh the brilliant producer charlie is continuing to produce the show um we'll have the the same mix of our our usual guests i keep saying ah it's not anything to do with me now (laughs) the same mix of guests and uh some really amazing new ones um you know the the they've already been starting to appear already uh, and the show goes from strength to strength
0: yeah yeah okay so it's not you now um not me what are you doing
1: uh, i'm going off to um make make different shows um making podcasts that aren't panel shows um, as, as, as part of I've, The
0: Athletic I should qualify As right?
1: part of as part of The Athletic um, I'll get some some budget to play with and access to quite a lot of talent and some brilliant producers and uh, we'll, we'll have a whole load of new shows coming out some are um, brilliant and football football centric and some are a bit Left field and a bit odd, and are either going to fall on their ass or they're going to be amazing. Um, but it's it's an opportunity to to do some really creative stuff, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. As as I'm looking forward to not waking up at three in the morning having uh, sweats and terrors about incoming VAT <laughs> bills or corporation tax or
0: <laughs> yeah, so
1: on and so forth.
0: So does that what we've just done feel like a fairly accurate uh, reflection of your career? Anything you want to add?
1: Well, I think we could have spent more time talking about Friday nights at McDonald's on Chelmsford High Street. I agree. But I guess, you know, and the black bin bags. We, we yeah, we, we can do that in a pub. It'll be a counselling session. Yeah,
0: OK. Ian, that was your life. Not that, but, you know, <laughs> thanks very much. Much appreciated. Um, and uh, no, no hopefully we'll be able to listen to many of your new middle field and left field podcasts in the future. Uh, we'll certainly let TIFO listeners know as and when they begin to emerge.
1: Brilliant. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Joe.